morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all this to cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Very often, life has a tendency to show us problems we didn't know we had. Ever experienced that? All of a sudden, sort of your eyes get opened, and you realize that, man, I, th- there's a problem here I, I wasn't even aware of. And, and sometimes they can seem like insurmountable problems. I didn't even know I had this problem. Now that I see it, it seems too big for me to do anything about. You ever experience anything like that. One uh, small example, sort of insignificant example, I thought of that, of this concept is Rachel and I years ago, we bought a rental house across the street from where we live down in Kansas. And when we went into that place, when we tore the carpet up, there were beautiful wood floors always underneath that carpet. Always a great surprise if you've ever done that. Two different kinds of wood. It was, and I thought, man, we're going to refinish these. And that's a big enough job as it is. But I went in this one room, this back room in the corner of that house. And on the wood, there was this, this hard black adhesive. And I thought, you know, the, the, looks, the wood is so nice and it's in such good shape. I'm just going to scrape that glue stuff off of this floor and then I'll refinish it. So I, I got this scraping tool, and I sat down and went to work. Put some music on. It's going to be easy. It's going to be great. And I went to scraping, and I scraped for, I don't know, half an hour or an hour. And I looked, and I maybe had two square inches of this adhesive cleared off. And suddenly, looking at the size of this floor, I was like, this is, this is a huge problem. This is a much bigger deal than I thought. Now, Thankfully, all, not all insurmountable problems even need to be surmounted. A deal like that, we just put different flooring right over top of that stuff and did not blink an eye. Um, we, didn't, we didn't refinish that part, that part, but sometimes we're in our lives, we sort of get our eyes opened to a problem that seems insurmountable, but it's something we have to face. It's a lot bigger deal than some black glue left on a floor. This passage that John just read for us this morning, 
This is the story of a time where Jesus orchestrated some events so that his disciples could see the real problem. So that they could see the problem they didn't even know they had. Most people didn't know existed. And he does it in a way that I think makes them want to believe this is an insurmountable problem. My purpose this morning is to make sure you and I know the real problem and that we are part of the only solution. Chuck Swindoll, I love Chuck Swindoll. He's maybe my, if I had to pick a favorite preacher, that's, that's kind of my guy. He's the master. Chuck Swindoll once said this, Every day we encounter golden opportunities brilliantly disguised as insurmountable problems. I love that. Every day we encounter countless golden opportunities brilliantly disguised as insurmountable problems. I think that's what this passage is about. We're going to dive in and really, we're not even going to start in the book of Matthew, really. We're all going to, trust me, we're going to be about that passage. But I I need to see you how, I need to show you how Jesus sets up this problem. How he exposes the real problem by what he does Today, Jesus performs two miracles, two healings in that story that John read for us, right? What did he do? He took two blind men and and gave them sight. And then he took another guy who either couldn't speak or he couldn't hear or both. It's the same Greek word, so you can't really tell what his uh, full problem was. And he opened either his ears and loosed his tongue or, or both of those things. Clearly, those are what are called messianic miracles. What I mean by that, uh, Israel hadn't had a king in hundreds and hundreds of years. But the Old Testament promised that there was a day coming when Israel would get a king again. And the title for that special king in Greek is Christ, in Hebrew is Messiah. And Jesus does two miracles today in, in rapid succession that basically says, that's me. In Isaiah chapter 35 is is one place where um, life under the Messiah was sort of explained what it would be like. And look at what the prophet Isaiah said. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. When when the Messiah and his kingdom is, is operating, Isaiah 35 verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. That's what Jesus does in, in today's passage in Matthew. Rapid fire secession. Two blind men get their sight. Either a deaf and or, a deaf and or mute man is healed. And it's Jesus' way of saying, that's me. All right, let's take a, a closer look at what Jesus does in these miracles today. Where we pick up today, Jesus is actually on his way back from, uh, from a, a, another person's house. A, a, a leader of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, and Jesus raised his little girl from the dead. But now he's on his way back to the house in Capernaum where he has been ministering. Probably Peter's house still is, is where he's uh, kind of his home base in Capernaum. And somewhere along that trip... Two blind men join their procession. I don't know how they did this. If they just went and grabbed a hold of somebody who was 
you know, in that procession, or if they just did it by listening or what, but they're following along with Jesus, behind Jesus, and they're shouting something important. What they're shouting is, have mercy on us, son of David. First person in Matthew to call Jesus son of David. That may not sound like it to us, but that is like saying, help us Messiah or Christ. The Old Testament said the Christ would be a descendant of David. The son of David was the Messiah. It's what Matthew's been showing us in his whole book, that that's Jesus' identity. Very first verse, Matthew basically said, I'm going to tell you the story now of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, and son of Abraham also. So this, these two blind men somehow recognize Jesus' identity as, as Messiah as Christ. It is interesting throughout the Gospels, like the people who see, the people who understand, the people who recognize Jesus's identity the best are not the people that know the Old Testament scriptures the best. It's not Jewish scholars that recognize Jesus for who he is. It's blind people. It's sick people. It's hurting people. It's Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And we certainly see that here. So these guys make it in the house. Jesus says, hey, do you believe I can do this? They say, yes, we do. And Jesus says, hey, because you believe, I'm going to give you your sight. And what we learn there is faith in Jesus Christ is what opens the eyes of the blind. Always, or usually in the scripture, very often, sight is a metaphor for understanding, right? Do you see what I mean? understanding. So these two guys are healed miraculously. What a miracle this is. I don't know how long these guys have been blind, but all the little parts that that have to work between the lens of your eye and your brain, there's a lot of fine tuning that has to be done there for you and I to be able to see. And Jesus either heals or recreates those those parts in these men, they can see. And then Jesus does something that borders on the ridiculous, I think. This is absurd. Because what he does, in verse 30, so this is like the last three lines on the screen up there, Jesus has taken these two men who are blind, he's given them sight, and then what does he command them to do? <laughs> verse 30, Jesus sternly warned them, see that nobody finds out about this. Is that ridiculous? You think about this. If you knew these two men, what is their, what is their like overriding main characteristic that you know them by? These are the blind guys. Now you think of how this would work its way out in real life. You bump into these formerly blind men and you can tell, like you can see. What would you ask You'd be like, this is awesome, what happened? You were blind, now you can see. If they're obedient to Jesus here, they have to say, nothing. (laughs) I mean, what do you even say? We both got simultaneously kicked in the head and just, I don't know, we can see. This is absurd. It's what Jesus commands. And I believe Jesus knows As they leave, they have no intention of being obedient to that. Why would Jesus command that? 
Hang on to that. We'll come back to that idea later. As soon as those two guys, as they're walking out, walking in as this man who is either deaf or he can't talk or both of those things is true as is often the case, we're told this man has a demonic issue. Jesus casts out the demon and suddenly this guy just starts talking. We don't really learn anything else about this gentleman. But again, here's what we know. Messiah is supposed to give sight to the blind, make the mute speak, make the deaf hear. And Jesus is doing this right in front of these people. And, he, and he's doing it on purpose. Now, even more important or as important as what Jesus did in this passage is the reactions Because remember, Jesus is setting up. He wants his disciples to see the problem. And I want you to notice there are two reactions to these miracles that Matthew records for us. First, the way the crowds react. The crowds is just usually the word um, given to anybody who's just the throngs of people who follow Jesus around and listen to him preach and watch him do miracles. There's always people crowding around Jesus, and they're very impressed by what Jesus has done that day. And they're, they're probably saying lots of stuff, but one prevailing topic is they're saying, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. That's, that's a really good thing to say about Jesus. Because necessarily, this is a bunch of Jews in Galilee, and necessarily when they say nobody in Israel has been able to do the stuff that Jesus can do, they're saying, this guy, this guy's above Moses on the miracle scale. This guy's, uh, this guy's above Elijah. This guy's above Elisha. This is the greatest miracle worker in the eons of Israelite history. Jesus is at the top. Isn't that a great thing for them to say about Jesus? It is a good thing. But I want you to know that it's, an, it's inadequate. The response of the crowds throughout the Gospels normally, even when it seems good, it's always inadequate. And here's what I mean. It is never enough. It doesn't do us a bit of good, eternally speaking, to come to the conclusion that Jesus was awesome, that Jesus was a great teacher, that Jesus set a good example, or that Jesus had miraculous power. It doesn't do us, there's no salvific benefit in that. Jesus did not come to earth to amaze people. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross under the penalty of our sin that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. What Jesus wants people to get is his identity, that he's Savior, that he's Christ, that he's Son of God. Any other, even if it's a good conclusion we draw about Jesus, if it's not faith in his blood, it's inadequate. But if the crowd's response is inadequate, the other recorded response is downright adversarial. Because the Pharisees, and this is a a combination, think of them as kind of a a religious-slash-political group, political party, religious group. They look, they see the crowds amazed at Jesus, and here's their explanation. They say, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. It's really interesting to note 
throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus always has enemies. One claim his enemies never make. They never say, oh, Jesus didn't really have miraculous power. You never find one of Jesus' enemies saying, what he does is all like parlor tricks, right? He's not like taking his thumb off and doing this number, right? He's like, it's not like... It's not that. It's not illusions. He's not David Copperfield, if you're a little bit older. David Blaine, if you're a little bit younger. Um, They always grant that he had miraculous power. They just, like, give the wrong team credit. They say, oh, yes, we we agree that he has miraculous power, but he's like using devil magic. Here's why they say this. Here's why they come to this conclusion. The Pharisees know the book of Isaiah probably better than, better than any of us. They know that Messiah is supposed to give sight to the blind, make the mute talk, make the deaf hear. And they've got a decision to make about Jesus' identity. Is he or isn't he who he is obviously claiming to be? But G- and there's plenty of evidence, but Jesus has already made clear As the king of Israel, he's not going to do what they want him to do. Here's what they want from the Christ. Restore the Jewish kingdom and then punish all these people who've been keeping us down. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world. What did I come to do? I came to save the world. They wanted Jesus to punish the unrighteous sinners. Jesus said, oh, I came to have dinner with them. I came to establish a relationship with them. They don't want a Messiah like Jesus has has described that he's going to be. So I think very intentionally, their thought process may have been something like this. As long as we make sure he doesn't become king, God still has to fulfill his promise to give us a king. Just maybe next time he'll give us one we like. So the line is drawn. Now this is still out in Galilee, like out in the country. They're kind of out in the sticks. He'll be rejected on a national level later. So the Pharisees say that you know, the crowds are impressed. Man, could this be the one? I mean, he, there, we haven't seen anything like this in Israel ever before. The Pharisees say, nay, not so fast. He's using devil magic, and then Matthew just leaves that hanging. And then in verses 35 and 36, Matthew just shows us just a a brief description of continued ministry. Jesus keeps doing what he's been doing. He's traveling, he's preaching, he's performing miracles. He's traveling, he's preaching, he's performing miracles. And we just see this picture of crowds, multitudes, throngs of people getting close to Jesus to watch watch him do uh, the stuff that he does. And then all of a sudden, at some point, Jesus looks out along these crowds and he's overcome with compassion. I love the Greek word for compassion. It really, it literally means to feel in your guts. (laughs) Jesus looks out over this crowd and he's overcome with emotion, um, with, with empathy, with sympathy for these people around him. But it's not for the reasons maybe we would have thought. The people who come to Jesus, why do they come to Jesus out in Galilee? Because I'm blind and he can heal. 
because I'm a leper and he can make me clean. You know, I have a, last week I have a bleeding issue. I have a little daughter that's dying. I have stuff I need fixed. And he's the fixer. But Jesus, when he looks out of compassion, the last two lines on the screen, he doesn't look out on, on, with compassion on these people because of their ailments. He says, because these, all these people are bewildered and helpless, or your Bible might say distressed and dispirited, or they're weary and scattered. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Here's Jesus' compassion. He sees all these people just like the crowds back in that house, they're coming for the, for the magic show. They're coming to have something physical and temporary fixed. They don't even know what their real problem is. And he says they're, they're just, they're tired, they're wandering, and they don't have anybody leading them. They're national leaders, they're religious leaders, at least out in Galilee. They've rejected me. What they need is somebody to tell them I'm the king. And they're not getting that. They're, they're, they're lost sheep. Also in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah said, we are all like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone our own way. Our real problem is separation from God. Our real problem is we're headed for an eternity apart from him. And what we need is someone to lead us to Jesus. Like he's the good shepherd. He will he'll call himself that in another place. Now do you see the problem that Jesus is setting up or has set up? Jesus is exposing the problem. Right here in this little passage, he's made very evident he's the Messiah. Throughout the book of Matthew, here's what we've learned. He's got the right pedigree, the right lineage, the right family tree to be Messiah. He had the right mama to be Messiah. He had the right forerunner to be Messiah. He's got the right ministry. He's got the right miracles. He's he's fulfilling the right prophecies. But almost nobody gets it. They're missing it. The, the, The leaders of these people are saying that he works for the devil. The crowds just come because they want fed or they want fixed. It's just the truth of human nature. We don't want God. We tend to want his stuff, though. Like, we don't want him to be our Lord. We don't want him to, like, tell us what to do. We just want him to fix our list of stuff. We don't want God. We want his things. And Jesus says, boys... He's still, he's overcome with compassion. He's very emotional. And he says to his disciples, here's the problem. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Guys, take a minute and look out there at these lost people that don't even know their real problem. They need someone to explain to them who I am. They need to place their faith in me and follow me. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. You know what I need? The problem is the harvest is plentiful, so I need bigger miracles. I need to ratchet up the light show. He just raised a little girl from the dead. He just recreated the ability to see between somebody's eyeballs and his brain. Two people. And people still 
just see Jesus, Jesus as the fix-it man. They still don't get who he is. He says, boys, the harvest is plentiful. And then here's what's striking in this. The workers are few. You know what he's saying? I can't do this alone. I mean, I'm right here doing miracles right in front of these people. and They're not getting it. You know what I need? I need help. How striking is that for the God of the universe to tell his friends, can you help me out here? This lets us know Jesus is doing an object, an object lesson. Jesus has put this together as an object lesson. Because the truth of Scripture is this. Everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is redeemed, God did every bit of it. Okay, God is the Lord of the harvest. We'll see on the next slide. God's the Lord of the harvest. But God invites us to be workers in that harvest. Here's why I characterize this as a, as a seemingly insurmountable problem. Can you imagine sitting with Jesus? Maybe you, we don't know exactly where the disciples are, but let's say they've come to believe he's the son of God, he's the Christ, he's the savior, he's God walking around on earth. Can you imagine what it felt like to hear him say, hey, whew, guys, I don't think I can do this. Will you help me? I would have felt pretty inadequate for that task. Like, Jesus, if you can't do it, what do you want from me? Like, I'm a, I'm a tax collector. I swindle people for a living. Right? I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a whatever. But Jesus says, here's the problem. There's a, there's a harvest of people out there. And far too few people work in it. That's the problem. And after making sure his disciples see the problem, he gives them at least the first step of the solution. Verse 38, Jesus has said that the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers are few. There's the problem. He says, here's how we're going to solve this problem, boys. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now moving forward from here, Next week, he's going to tell these guys, you're my first batch of workers. (laughs) Really, the the problem of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Here's how I'll, I'll summarize the whole solution. Become a harvest worker who prays for more harvest workers. What what do we do that there's so many people in the world who are headed for an eternity apart from God? We become a harvest worker who prays for more harvest workers. But today, he just tells his disciples, will you pray? Will you pray that God would send workers into the harvest? God's the Lord of the harvest. Everybody who ever gets saved, God gets the credit. He's the Lord of the harvest. But Jesus says, I need, Jesus talking, I need people who will go out into the harvest fields, who will be willing to tell people what I've done in their lives. What, what, I, what, I, what I fixed that they couldn't. How I saved them when they, when they couldn't. And here's the part where you start to get really nervous. Because you're like, Pastor Matt's going to tell us to go tell people about Jesus. <laughs> oh, did you hear that? I think I got to go. Did you turn the toaster off? I got to run home. Right now, stay put. Relax. 
Remember those two blind guys that Jesus made an unreasonable request to? Didn't you think that was ridiculous when Jesus took blind people, two blind men, made them see again and said, now don't tell anybody about that. When we read that, how many of you thought, oh, come on, that's preposterous. It's ridiculous. Jesus was setting us up. Jesus was setting us up. Because he wants us to get to this part where we feel nervous and connect the two stories. Back in that story with the blind men, he, he restores their sight, he changes them fundamentally, and he sends them out and says, don't tell anybody. And we all read that and go, oh, come on. Come on, Jesus. Somebody's going to ask, why are you different? Why can you see? How can you not want them to tell people what you did to fix their life? And I think Jesus would want us to hear him saying, well, you seem to be just fine with it. Because if you've placed your faith in what Jesus did at the cross, he did something way better for you and me than making us be able to see for the next few decades till we die. He fixed us eternally. And if we think it's ridiculous for Jesus to say, you go out there and don't tell anybody, then why don't we think it's ridiculous when he tells us, go out there and tell everybody? And we go, oh, no, I could never do that. Now you're being ridiculous, Jesus. You can't ask me to do that. Well, I'm not going to ask you to do that yet. But can I ask you to do this much? Can you therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest? I want to ask you for a show of hands. Man, I was convicted by this recently. In, in your prayer life, A, do you have a prayer life? And B, does it include asking God to send harvest workers to introduce people to Jesus? That's a really clear command of Jesus. Jesus says, do you see the problem, boys? There are thousands and millions of people that are headed for an eternity, eternity apart from me, and I have, he's going to give this task to people. Will you pray and ask God to send, send workers? We can do that, right? Do you see the problem? The way Jesus presented it? Do you see the real problem? The ultimate problem on earth is not a political problem. It's not a health problem. It's Jesus' problem. That's the problem. The problem Jesus wanted his disciples to see then is still the problem today. There are millions of people who don't know Jesus and they need to know him. That's the problem right here for us. There's about 4,000 people in Chase County. If we could ask every single person in Chase County, do you, like, do you know if you're going to a good place when you die? I mean, every single funeral, everybody says, oh man, thank goodness, she's in a better place now. If you ask people why they're still alive, when you die, are you going to be in a better place? If so, why? Out of the 4,000 people in our county, how many would would say it doesn't have anything to do with how I lived or what I did? The only reason I'm going, I'm going to go to a better place because Jesus came and died on the cross and my sins were on him. 
He became my sin. He so absorbed the wrath of God that my sins deserve that when I die and go stand before God, God's going to say, I don't have any more punishment left for you. It's already been poured out. That's why I'm going to heaven. How many people in our county of 4,000 would give an answer like that? How many would say, well, I'm better than most of the Christians I know. Live better than a guy down the street or all that stuff. I'm just going away. I'm going to be nothing. Do you see the problem? We have the same problem. You know what the problem is here in our church? It's not that we don't have enough seats in the sanctuary. The problem is there's thousands of people in our county who don't know the one we're talking about here. The truth is, Jesus said, the problem is people don't know me, and he made us the solution to become harvest workers that pray for harvest workers. We need people who will just be in a conversation with somebody and say, listen, here's who I was, and here's how I met Jesus, and here's who I am now. We need people who can explain, who can write out on a napkin or something, uh, a, a Bible verse like, like one of these, Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is so awesome. You know what those two verses say? All. Raise your hand if you are part of all. Thank you very much. That's you. All have sinned and fall short of the requirements of perfection that God, being with God forever, would take. But... That's the best word in all of scripture right there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But people get justified. People get declared not guilty. Declared as if they hadn't fallen short. How? By grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A free gift given to those who place their faith in what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus said, man, we need people who can explain that to people. Would you pray for them? Or Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what wages are? What are wages? It's what you earn for work you do. The Apostle Paul said, guess what you have earned for your sin? Death. Death is always a separation in the scriptures. This is eternal death. Separation from God. That's what you... Never never think, man, I hope I get what I deserve from God. Because it's death. But. There's that great word again. But. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is one way to undo what we've earned as placing our faith in Jesus Christ. All right. The problem today is the same as the problem then. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. My challenge to you for this week is simply to pray every day. I'm challenging you to pray every day for one week that God would send out harvest workers into Chase County to tell people about the Savior they need to know. Can you do that? That's not threatening. We can do that. You don't even have to tell anybody else you're doing it. Because we've got a big, big problem. Jesus let us know what it was today. 
pray with me. Father God, I want to start uh, by doing what you told us to do right here in, in this passage, to pray for harvest workers. I don't know how many unsaved people there are in our county, but, but a lot, Lord. And they don't even know their right problem. They think their problem is the, their marriage issue or their health issue or their kids aren't behaving or they can't find the right place to live. And if those things would be fixed, they'd have peace and, and happiness in their life. Lord, their real problem is if they don't know you as Savior, they're separated from you now and for eternity. And together, Lord, for the, just for the first time of hopefully many prayers this week, We just want to beseech the Lord of the harvest. We want to ask you, Lord, would you raise up people in Imperial, in Chase County, in the surrounding area who know you and who aren't afraid to invite people to, to, to this church, Lord, to a church that teaches through the Bible as if the Bible is sufficient for wisdom and salvation, which it is. pray that you would raise up people who understand the gospel and can explain it to co-workers and friends. Lord, all of us have unsaved family members. Would you raise up and send out a harvest worker, somebody who knows you, who would explain to those whom we love that don't love you about what a relationship with Jesus is like and how to start one and what we have to do and what faith means. Lord, we see the problem here. Our real problem is there's a plentiful harvest and there's not enough workers. So what we're asking you this morning is if you would send, raise up and send out workers into the harvest fields. And we thank you ahead of time for how you'll answer that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.